The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this time that we get to be together. We don't take it for granted, the privilege it is to come and to worship you uh, freely. We thank you for the joy of being able to be together as we talk about your word and the way you've made this world. Lord, as we talk about um, matters today that are sensitive yet important, I pray that um, your spirit would go before each one of us and that it wouldn't be crass, it wouldn't be flippant, but it would drive us to recognize really the depth of your love. That's what this is all about. And as we talk about sex, we pray that you would help us to see um, appropriately what, what it is, the goodness of your creation and also the, the wonder that it points to something that's beyond what we can even imagine. And I pray that that reality would, would take effect in our hearts this day. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you weren't here last week, we talked about sex. We're talking about it again this week. Um, really because when I was looking at the difference of the material that I was going at, the Keller Meaning for Marriage book, it's a, it was a phenomenal, um, I mean, all that stuff's available online. But it was a great chapter that went through kind of how the world understands sex, and it was really kind of giving a defense for the Christian plausibility of the sexual ethic, which is great and important. I was like, wow, that's... And there's just no way to do that, which I felt like was needed, and then also cover the two chapters in the Intimate Mystery that were far less about uh, giving a defense for the Christian sexual ethic and more about explaining really the, the theological implications of sex and then helping married couples to live into that. And so uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. And there's a little bit of, I mean, the, both chapters were amazing, and Keller and then also the, the Intimate Mystery. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But we, we left off in Keller, uh, just a give a quick summary. He gave three false views of, of what sex is, the way it's seen in our culture today. Sex merely as an appetite uh, that you should never deny, you know, a bodily appetite. You know, that would be heinous for some people today. Uh, another false view is that sex is evil and dirty. Uh, this is has its roots, morning, in the uh, dualistic kind of Eastern understanding of the, the body is bad, the created world is bad, but the spirit is good. Christianity, we said, was one of the most radically body positive, physical positive things. You think about the, um, it, it stands in quite contrast to the Eastern religions that are, you know, nirvana is just reaching this state where you empty yourself completely of all desire. And the Christians say, actually, the created world is very good. It's not all that there is. It's not even the most significant part of reality. But it is, in fact, good and meant to be enjoyed. A third uh, and really important false understanding of sex today is that sex is a, 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 an essential form of identity and self-expression. And you can imagine you know, just how, in the last few decades, how important that has come to the, the surface in our society. And over against that, Keller talked about sex is this created good that is a unifying act. He calls it, he roots it in the covenant. And we talked a lot about 
the covenant, this binding agreement where you're binding yourself. Earlier in chapter, I think it's three or four of the meaning of marriage, he talks about what is a covenant and that it's only within the covenant of marriage where you're fully secure and you're able to give yourself wholly to the other. And that's why sex was given for that kind of legal, binding, permanent relationship. And sex is what he calls, it's a covenant renewal service. Just like the Old Testament, Exodus 34, is this renewal. You'd see it often throughout the Old Testament, the, the people of God renewing themselves to their devotion to their, uh, their Lord. And that, in a sense, is a picture. You're coming together in marriage to renew the vows. And, and so it's not just purely, one of the things he was saying is it's not just purely something that uh, you only do when you feel it. That was a big thing Keller was talking about, was if you, if you rely on that, you almost never do it, which only creates less times to, um, to, to feel in the mood. So he says it's, it's designed to be a commitment apparatus that joins uh, husband and wife together. And what we stopped with was one of the, getting into some of the details about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul uh, admonishes uh, each partner to not, um, well, let's get out. That's probably worth going to grab the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We should read that. This is all by way of summary of last week, so I haven't even gotten to the calendar. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5. Um, all right, let's start at verse 2. Because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now that was really radical because in that day women had no rights and so it was very, under, very much understood that women in ancient Greek and Roman culture were the property of the husbands. And Paul radically lifts up women and says actually the husband belongs to the wife just as much as the wife belongs to the husband. It's pretty amazing. Um, verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not rule over her own body but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Do not refuse one another, except perhaps by agreement for a season, that you may, be, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come back together again, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. That is a very radical view of sex, I think, that stands way over and against our culture's understanding of sex as this purely something that you must feel first and express then after you initially have those feelings. And so it's pretty radical ethic, and that's what we're going to get at a, a little bit today. But Keller, at the end of his chapter, says that there are two important practical applications of what Paul just says. Um, one is when it comes to one partner wanting sex more than the other which is like a perennial issue in marriage. Somebody is going to have, everybody has desires. Who wins? And Paul says, basically, back in Ephesians, both of you seek to serve the other. And that is going to change. Um, it, so it's not just, we'll probably get to, to more of this later, but uh, it's not purely just listening to the person. It, it's seeking to serve even the person who doesn't uh, necessarily feel in the mood. And so it's not just this uniform, you must do this when one party feels that sex should be had. But you should give yourself to the satisfaction of the other. 
Um, and Keller talked about it. one of the reasons that is important is because context apparently is important for women way more than men, and we'll talk more about the difference between uh, men and women in Allender's book, which he goes into. Any, anybody read it? I'm kind of hoping you didn't read it. You did? You read it, I know. No? Okay, great. Um, I'm going to avoid then some of the parts that, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty, um, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, recognizing when you re- see how men and women approach sex differently, when the principle of I want to serve my spouse is ruling, that is going to uh, not necessarily mean that you just always end up having sex when one person feels it. You know, nor is it necessarily denying like, when, when somebody isn't in the mood, right? And so it's, uh, we'll get, I think Allender's really helpful when it comes to, to some of this. But Keller says sex, in, on page 271, sex is glorious not only because it reflects the joy of the Trinity, but also because it points to the eternal delight that we will have in heaven in our loving relationships with God and one another. So this is actually really important if you are here and you are single. This is really important for you because what we're talking about, though it's sex, actually has way more to do with what every one of us as Christians will experience for eternity. And we're going to talk in Allender. We're going to put on our big boy and big girl biological. uh, He's talking biologically for a theological purpose. And so um, I think when you approach what he says in that way, he's trying to draw out, okay, just the very fact of the, the biological reality of the way God made men and women and sex, it actually points to something incredibly amazing. Like the, one of the most amazing things, I mean, our culture has come to worship it, and because it, it sees the amazing good that sex is, and it makes it into this demigod, right? But when you recognize that that, which is the pinnacle of, you know, human relationship is like at the very bottom of what will be experienced in heaven for those who maybe never experience marriage. I think that's, that's why it's worth talking about sex. So jumping into chapter 8 of Allender and Longman's The Intimate Mystery, his first chapters united in one flesh. And I said last week, this whole topic is, uh, he just names it. He's like, you know, some people skipped right to this chapter and some people, you know, skipped last week because they knew we were talking about sex. And so uh, I think that's important to name that this topic has a very polarizing nature to it. I, I think for many people there is no doubt one of the most, uh, this is, brings up a lot of shame with it. It's not an accident, interestingly enough, that I'm preaching this morning on the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John 4, who has quite a sexual past, it seems. So... Uh, anyway, so chapter 8, cleaving united in one flesh. And he talks about how sex is really this scandalous thing. And I'm going to read probably the most scandalous thing I've ever read a Christian author um, <laughs> ever write. And the reason he's actually quoting, yeah, here it is. He's quoting Mike Mason, The Intimate Mystery of Marriage. This is about two paragraphs. Of all the sensations that we can experience with our physical senses, surely this is the one that comes closest to the Lord's Supper in being an actual touching of the source of our being, of our Creator. 
Like prayer, sex is a thing of exertion, of sweat, of groaning. And like death, it is intimately acquainted with surrender, excretion, and the mournful frailty and the heart-rending glory of flesh. And these are all things that God has made. He made the woman with an open wound in her body, such that it can only be staunched by a man. And he made the man uh, with a tumor, that maddening pressure of which is only alleviated when it is allowed to grow inside the woman's wound. He made the man to root and to flower in the aching earth of a woman. He made sex, we have to suspect, specifically so that it would be difficult for the mind of man to conceive of anything more earthy, more humiliating, and more desirable, and so to be a constant reminder of his true nature. But it's also to instruct him in his higher nature and in his destiny. For in the touching of a person of the opposite sex in the most secret place of his or her body, with one's own most private part, there is something that reaches beyond touch, something that goes behind behind flesh itself to the place where it connects with spirit, to the place where incarnation happens. Now, that's what he quoted, and this is what Allender says next. Mason's words are scandalous, obviously. (laughs) By equating sex and spirituality, intercourse and communion, earthiness and transcendence, Mason has disclosed one of the great mysteries of life, the interplay of heaven and earth. Most people would prefer for those worlds to be far divided, controllable and predictable. It's easy to focus on heaven and ignore, or worse, disdain sex as too wild and human. Or it's easy to focus on the earth and ignore, or worse, disdain transcendence as too abstract, mystical, and religious. Sex weds souls and worlds, even without marriage or commitment. So the reason, I I think that's one of the most scandalous things to say, but do you see what he's getting at? What, what this physical act that so many people just treat as a, as a physical act alone um, is so much more than, than what the culture says, that it has a spiritual dimension to it. And then there are those, perhaps in the church, who want to be very prudish. We said last week, the, book, the Bible is not a book for the prudish. Just read Song of Songs if you um, want to, to see why. So there are, I think, those in the church who really kind of feel um, uncomfortable when God blesses and sees the goodness of something that is so physical as, as what sex is. Um, any, any pleasure must be sinful in that sense. And so what was that? I was going to ask, do you think a lot of people have that opinion because of I think so. Yeah, no doubt about it. And one of the things, actually, that's, that was... Um, that was one of the think, quotes I wanted to, to bring up. I think maybe that's in the next chapter. But basically what it's saying is that if this is such a, a, a transcendent and imminent reality, if this is a, a blending of heaven and earth, if this is one of the peak things that we can see on this earth that shows us who God is and what eternity will be like, if it's that good, no wonder evil is trying to mock and mar it. That's what, those are Allender's words. I don't know where they were. but um, How, uh, I, I, before I go any further, 
for those of you who were here last week or for those who have just heard this and it's kind of like, how is that sitting? Is that how you've thought about sex before? Um, I'd love to hear from you at this point. And if you feel too uncomfortable, I honor that and I can just keep talking. Any, any questions at all? I know last week I didn't have any questions, Tim. Okay. You were talking about two types of people, like either skip the chapter or you know just skip over it. I was blindsided. I didn't see it coming. I was just kind of. I didn't read the table of contents. I just you you weren't thinking anything, and then we're. And when it's only whispered in that sense, and it's only those who seek to pervert it, dominate the conversation, that's a problem because they didn't create it. And so we should reverently and yet um, accurately look at, and that's why I was saying, for those of you who walked in, you're like, what the heck did we just walk into? Um, there's a lot of biology in this, uh, this week and last week, and the reason we're looking at it is um, especially Allender and Longman and the Intimate Mystery are seeking to show that such biology serves a theological purpose. It's showing us something about who God is. So uh, let's, if you remember where, where we've been before, just kind of going back to leaving. So leaving father and mother is not just a geographical thing, it's an allegiance, right? It's creating trust. And then weaving is the, the, the lubricant of the relationship. You're getting to, to really know the heart of the other. It's creating the, the verbal and emotional intimacy through communication. Um, and so what Allender says is sex is not one topic among many, nor is it the most important part of marriage. It is the summation of all that comes before and the furtherance of the process of leaving and weaving. So that, that process of creating trust and longing for hope in the relationship. So uh, one of the things that he says in chapter 8 is that sex is in fact a gift. And as such, it should be cherished and used frequently uh, and cared for well and not uh, abused. And we, that's why I think, as we were talking about before, evil seeks to mar it precisely because of the goodness of this gift. Um, he says on page 81, a couple must have a good feeling about the past and the future. You know, so talking about the past is the whole leaving, and then weaving creates hope for the future. So in order to be present in the actual act of sex and uh, for it to be what it was meant to be, uh, you have to have the leaving and the weaving well. Uh, it's, it's very interesting that he, he admonishes... Um, at one point, he said, uh, we'll, we'll get to that when he gets to anger. So, um, sexual union is a, joy, is a picture of God's union with the church. Uh, and, and he says, so in order to care for this wonderful gift, we have to acknowledge that the bedroom is full of what he calls ghosts. So, there are three ghosts that he talks about. 
um, the ghosts of fear, the ghosts of anger, and the ghost of disgust. And I, I love the honesty that he speaks with. Of course, he's very honest. You can recognize that at this point. But he says on page 82, if a person says, we have great sex, we have never struggled in that area, he's not telling the truth. Some couples, uh, nothing but sex keeps them together. But survival sex does not lead to joy. It merely keeps a person intact. It is a form of sexual addiction that is guaranteed in the long run to turn dark. And so recognizing that there's, remember, he's a counselor psychologist, so he's peeling back the layers of the heart and the mind, not just talking about the actions here. So um, the first ghost, fear, right? And so we all uh, experience this in many levels, uh, comparing ourselves, feeling inadequate. Um, and so sex can often bring up that ghost in, in our hearts. And he says this, it's not enough to say the words that, you know, you're the one for me, you're all that I ever want. He says, that's, that's just not going to do it. Um, because, uh, like he says, it's like cotton candy. Such fluff will suffice for a moment, but the fear doesn't go away unless it's engaged. So he, he gives some questions to ask if in the bedroom of your marriage you have this ghost of fear. He says, well, first you need to ask both myself and my spouse, what is my fear? What is your fear? With whom are we competing? What are our body images? And what are the stories that brought about all our answers to these questions? Do you see how he's already back into the weaving, the, the communication? Like he, This is getting to the heart. It's creating the intimacy um, at the heart level. The, uh, the other ghost he talks about is anger. And this is what, this is what I was going to say earlier. Sex to heal anger is like a bridge that's rotting away, he says. So he said it's dangerous. This is amazing. It's dangerous to kiss, make up, and have sex too many times. I think there's a profound reality to that. That really, a lot of this was, I'll be honest, new to me. I hadn't read this book before this class, and so that was kind of surprising that that would be a bad thing. But uh, the reason he says that is... Um, it's, either, it's easy to make sex either the beginning or the end of intimacy. Those who, want to find it, who find it hard to risk with words will make it the beginning of intimacy, and those who, make it to, um, those who make sex the end of intimacy will find it dangerous to begin with touch. I thought that was kind of a really interesting... That was on page 84. Um, so again, he kind of takes us back. If, if anger is something that... Is, is maybe one of these ghosts in your heart, then you need to go back to this whole process, the sequential process of, you shouldn't just jump, bypass the whole creating trust through leaving and, and creating hope through communication and weaving your lives together. You have to go through those as the norm. Like, I think that is, there's a time and a place probably where the, as Keller said, the commitment apparatus of sex can be good in response at times, but Allender warns against if you struggle with anger, it can be a problem and it can be dangerous to look to sex to basically be something uh, that is basically a, a band-aid over something that is deeply wounded in your heart. So he says, here's some good questions to ask. Uh, if you have the bedroom ghost of anger, asking your spouse, how are we doing? Are there any short-term or long-term tensions between us that could become cancerous? 
How do you feel about the way we enter into conflict with each other? What would you like to be different about the way we either fight or don't fight? I love the way he gives both of those options. Third ghost, disgust. Shame of all uh, emotions is probably the most frequent when it comes to sex. As I said, the enemy is seeking to to mar this uh, good gift. And so shame is, uh, is a, an, an emotion where you feel unworthy, ugly, um, inferior, and that everyone around you sees it. And so it's basically imagine a big set of eyes, like in The Great Gatsby, kind of looking at you. That's kind of the, the image of what shame is. And so uh, that is a major ghost in the, the bedroom. And these ghosts can only be removed through honesty, sexual healing, and time. There's no real easy fix, he says. And then he goes even more radical than what he said at this point. So after talking about some of those ghosts, he says, uh, it's actually really easy. And his, he kind of says there's a bell curve, if you think about most couples. Most of them have, are kind of like right here in the middle where they're kind of content with the way things are. They don't want to try any harder. They, they don't want to, it, 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 they, they know the place to, to stop, I guess, right? They don't want to go any further with curiosity and, and all that. They're, they've got their rhythm and they're sticking to it. He's like, yeah, that's probably the majority of couples. Then on the lower side of the bell curve, you have some who are so um, dissatisfied in their marriage that they uh, have looked elsewhere for sexual intimacy. But then there are those on this end who risk enough to keep always and, and have the humility to continue to risk um, longing for more, to not just become content. And that, that was kind of surprising to me that, that he would say that. Um, he says this on page 87. Uh, the fact is that sex is not merely for pleasure. It's an act of defiance. Sex is a war cry that is meant to pierce the darkness and clamor against evil, saying, you fool, you dastardly fool, Satan, you did not win. Sexual joy is an assault against all the powers and principalities that would divide, which is what Diablos means, divider, and devour the glory of intimacy. Sex is an act of war. Um, theologically speaking, that's, that's true. Because in this thing, if this is really, as Keller says, this apparatus that is bringing you together, um, the consummation of the intimacy of leaving and weaving that's created, um, the most, I, I see this all the time, where uh, I tell this to couples that I, I counsel before they get married, the biggest lie that Satan has, especially when you're engaged, is that you're basically there, it doesn't matter. You love each other already. He tries to make you get to the intimacy on the front end that's illicit. And it's like clockwork. Every time, as soon as they get married, it's like he just completely switches. And all that the enemy tries to do is keep you apart. Everyone I've talked to in the Christian life can echo that. It's, it's real that um, the temptation is always, if you're a Christian, to, to go beyond God's commands but then if God's really for this amazingly good gift, the second that he says, be fruitful, multiply, enjoy this gift frequently, 
the enemy steps in and is going to find every way to keep you apart. So that, those are some of the reasons why we're talking about this. All right, next chapter, playing with glory. This is important because it gets to some of the actual difficulties. And kind of when I alluded to the bell curve, he says, all right, this is really the choice that married couples have. They can either stand before God naked and exposed, raw with their own desire, or they can flee and hide and blame. Healing comes when we embrace our differences, embracing our differences and blessing the Creator for His paradoxical plan. It is furthered when the differences between husband and wife humble us and expose our false demands of the other. It is completed when gratitude and awe allow the heart to embrace God's passion. So uh, this is the chapter, chapter 9, where he uh, talks about some of just the very biological differences between men and women. These reveal theological truths. So he talks about, um, I thought this is so good, because uh, we'll get to Keller. We're going, this is the last time we're looking at this book. We're going back to Keller next week. And uh, at some point, we're going to look at what Keller has to say about the differences between men and women and husbands and wives. But this is really important to talk about in sex because they're different, right? And that never more is that the case on display than in sex. And this is what Allender says. He says, men reveal, and I love this, only to a small degree more, something about God's strength and righteousness. Only to a small degree more than women. Women reveal, only a small degree more than men, something about God's tenderness and mercy. So they're not identical. There's, there's a difference. Joined in redemption, these differences reveal God's strength and mercy together. But when they are sinfully divided against one another, they expose violence and enmeshment. So um, he goes into the four stages of uh, sexual movement. Desire, the, the beginning kind of arousal. Plateau, where it intensifies. Orgasm, and then decline. And I'm just going to say, you can read the chapter if you would like, but at every single point of those, men and women are fundamentally different. You probably, men are sight-oriented, women are um, word-oriented, right? Relationship-oriented. Um, men, uh, this is what he did, this is a good quote. This is, um, a woman is designed to move with poetic leisure, slow, deep, and hidden. A man is created by God to move with athletic fleetness, Athletic fleetness, intense, focused, and unambiguous. Through the interplay, they season each other so that grace becomes both fierce and kind. One must say the designer intended such competing, contradictory, and complex differences. If he designed it, what's the intention? Well, it's simple, he says. Sex can be fully, it can't be fully enjoyed without sacrifice and surrender when both parties simultaneously do that. To enter into the realm of another person's desire for the sake of bringing them joy requires that we give up control. And it's another way of, of really showing the theological truth that God is both transcendent and imminent. Have you heard that term? So God is transcendent in the sense that he is completely other, completely different from humanity, creation. 
He's exalted. He's holy. We, he's everything we're not. And yet in Jesus Christ, he became imminent. He became with us, present, susceptible to weakness, feeling what we feel, the transcendence and the imminence. You see that within the Trinity. They're, they're different, but they're one essence. They're three in one. It's this mystery. That same truth is displayed, what he's saying, in the movements of sex. You have polar opposites, yet they're both in the image of God. He says, the one who is like me couldn't be more different. And I think that is part of the the mystery that is being revealed about who God is in sex. So uh, he talks about the importance of humility later in the chapter, that um, humility is going to be the the characteristic that enables you to, to not kill desire, not to become settled with it, but to share curiosity and care for the other, to long for the goodness of God in this area and to move toward one another. Um, And he defines humility as this. He says, Humility doesn't presume that we've arrived, nor does it swagger with the bravado of feigned confidence. A good lover knows that there is a world of satisfaction, wonder, and sacrifice yet to learn and to experience. Humility is what allows us to keep each other to keep sexual encounter fresh and full of romance. I would have never put humility as the, the ingredient to keeping um, the romance fresh. But that's exactly what he says. Um, humility comes to the degree that we are willing to submit ourselves to the glory of the other. Now this is really, really important. Because at this point, we've talked about what Paul says in this command... This, he's, he's very clear, this is not what submission means, right? So submission in any endeavor, especially sexually, is not the equivalent of obedience. We don't submit by simply doing what the other wants us to do. That's a critical point, especially in this arena. We submit to the other as we bring them a taste of glory. The word submission means to align oneself under another person in order to serve a greater good. It's always about seeking the greater good. And so um, submitting our desires to the other spouse uh, is, is really important. Well, what happens when you have conflicting desire, which is what every disagreement is rooted around? One person has one desire, one person has another desire. What should you do? Well, he gives this encouragement. He says, basically, you should speak your desires. And you should seek to submit your desire to that of your spouse. Uh, And yet, the spouse needs to seek to engage the other person's desire. What does he mean? Well, engagement is not simply the squashing and the contempt of that person's desire, nor is it just the automatic servicing of the desire, he says. Um, He says, engagement, this is so... Uh, did I include this? In, I think this is one of the most helpful things. Uh, this is page 94. He says, Engaging the other person's desire means to plunge yourself into the meaning of their desire, the issues provoked in the other person, and then, the, and then dialogue regarding what it means together to serve one another so that both dignity and the joy of desire is fulfilled. What does he mean? 
This is important. Look, it's not so so often people want to make a um, <laughs> and make it black and white. Here's a here's a recipe plan for when you're in disagreement and who's the, who's the spouse that should get what they want. Well, um, what he says is actually what you really need to do is you need to lean into the other person's desire and ask questions. Ask what does that desire come, what does that come from? What does that tell you? I want to learn more about that um, and, and what it might mean for us together to work towards the good and, and honoring one another and uh, one another's desire so that the joy of desire can be fulfilled. It, it's gray. It's not a black and white answer of who wins in an argument. It's, it's, all, it's going back to the weaving that you, you've got to be able to, um, to first seek to to serve the other person and learn about their desires uh, and then mutually, and that's so important because so often uh, people think submission, when they read Ephesians 5, it's just, you know, shut up and do what the other person says. That is not at all. Jesus submitted to the Father and we see in the Garden of Eden him laying out his desire to the the Father, pleading with him, talking with him. Um, But then ultimately the greater good which he agreed upon was what came about. And so it's, it's never one way. Do you see that? It's always this interplay of communication between the other person. Even in, in, in the most, I think that's where the abuse of what it means to submit so often the church has just made it a blanket statement. And that is just, that's, that, that's devilish, honestly. So... Um, where are we? Okay, thank goodness. All right, um, wrapping it up. At the end of this chapter is about, uh, it's under playful worship. And again, he notes what, what Keller says, that God uses sexual union as one of the main images of intimacy with him, which is kind of amazing. Some of the most provocative places in the Bible, uh, the prophets, Ezekiel, uh, Hosea, have you seen Redeeming Love? Read the book Redeeming Love? No? Okay. It's, um, nothing is more difficult than the betrayal um, of sexual infidelity, right? And uh, that's exactly, if, if sex is a picture of our relationship, what, uh, the, the intimacy that we're to have with God, right? Um, don't press the image too far, but the, the, the emotional uh, relationship that we have with God. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, God says, you've basically become an adulterer. That's what sin is. You've become not just uh, disobedient, you've been unfaithful. And Hosea is a picture of the story of the Bible, which is that he tells the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute, a whore basically is one of this, and... Um, and you're going to be steadfast in your love of her. And she's going to constantly go after others. And it's going to be unbearable. But it's a picture of my love, and it's reenacting what you've done for me, that I'm going to be persistent in my pursuit to come after and love and woo you back to myself. That's the book of Hosea. It's the prophet's Ezekiel. That's what it's talking about. It uses a sexual imagery because nothing is more provocative and heinous than, than such... Um, betrayal in that area. And yet, the flip side of it is uh, even the, the glory of 
of, of sex and marriage doesn't even touch what, what the consummation will actually be like in heaven when we are face to face with the lover of our souls. And so he ends with this. He says, marriage is meant... Okay, sorry, I'm going to... These two quotes here, page 96 and 97. Um, and this is true in the spiritual life, but if you think about the, um, just how provocative the, the image of an unfaithful spouse sexually like Ezekiel and Hosea present, it's getting at the, the amazing, lavish love of God. And when you get the love of God that way, it changes your heart. It says... Uh, he, he says, our gratitude towards God will equal the degree to which we are able, which we are aware of just how scandalous it is that God chose to pursue us. We are not owed salvation. It's gratuitous. He is often a spurned lover who bears the heartbreaking disappointment of being spurned in favor of lovers who are vile and degrading. That's the picture of Jesus Christ. A lover who has been spurned, who goes after his unfaithful spouse. And he says, marriage is meant to be a playground of grace. It's the context to expose the worst and offer the best. To be exposed as the worst and embraced by grace. And grace makes us downright silly. Dancing, happy. Grace is a party that swings in the sensuality of good food, drink, music, dancing, and stories. Anything less is not merely dull. It's not scandalous enough to meet the scandal of grace with the wildness of worship. That's why we read this. So um, that's why it's, maybe I'm just absolutely foolish, but I think it's worth trying to talk about that. I hope I didn't completely offend everybody, but... I want you to see the, the spiritual reality um, and how that helps, when, especially when we look at the differences between men and women and, and, and how they each approach sex. Um, yes, it's practical and helpful because it, precisely because it shows us more about who God is, that he's three in one, that he's different and yet one. Um, and I hope that has been helpful to you. That's all I have for today. Any questions? Um, or thoughts. But my voice is almost gone and I have to preach. What was the fourth desire of God to orgasm and I read those quickly, didn't I? Uh, desire, plateau, orgasm, decline. So what he, I mean, these are, so men, the desire phase, they're sight-oriented. Women are relationship-oriented. So for men, it can take seconds. For women, it can take days. Uh, plateau, it's a rapid rise for men. It's a slow progress for women. I'm, uh, women and men have different kinds of orgasms. Uh, decline is rapid for men and progressive and slow, generally, for women. And this is what's interesting. What he means is, for men, they desire sleep and distance. For women, they desire touch and talk. That's what he says. I encourage that we had these conversations, and I think all I Very willing to tell us all 
it's like exclusionary, you know, like, um, maybe that's not the right word. The, the appropriate conversations were being excluded because it was about, you know, girls keep your pants on, boys were also told to keep their pants on, but it was a little bit of boy will be boys. There's more and more grace to be had for them, interestingly. Um, you know, virgin until you're married, that's the goal, of course. But it was like there was a nuance. And so I think without this conversation entering quite young, I mean, that should have been sixth, seventh grade, maybe earlier now is what's out there. Statistically, yeah. um, according to the darkest place statistics, um, by third grade, 80%, 85% of children will have heard about sex on the playground. Yeah, that, that's believable. Mm -hmm. At Theology and Cap, uh, a couple weeks ago, an uh, unsafe person came up after they were debating and asked me specifically why Jesus couldn't have had relations with Mary Magdalene sexually and then also suggested he had homosexual relations with, it, with disciples. And uh, I said, well, firstly, like all of Christianity would just crumble because Jesus was perfect. And you're saying he would be, like, whether with a man or a woman, he'd be having sex outside of marriage. So now you don't have a perfect plan as you're sacrificing. And then I said, but also, uh, and, and I was like, and he did do either of those things that you're suggesting. <laughs> And, and then I said, and, and then we talk about, like, well, why would it be worse if it was homosexual? And I said, well, like, God is very clear that sex is between a man and a woman. And then I said, they knew this person is not a scientist. And I was like, even just biologically, like, one of the things that really breaks down for me in the secular world with homosexuality, it's not discussed. We talk about evolutionary natural selection, like, you can't be fruitful and multiply. It doesn't work. You're, you ain't gonna make a baby that way. And so, like, I was like, it breaks down biologically as well. And this person who says they're an atheist was like, oh, I never thought of that. I was like, creation would end. Yeah. <laughs> what? So, they didn't thought of yeah. that. Yeah. But these are conversations yeah. where grown adults, and like, yeah. we don't know this wonderful stuff you just taught us. Um, so, um, the world doesn't. Yeah. And going back to kind of what you were saying, that if, oh, we gotta wrap up. Ephesians 5 talks about Jesus did have a bride, mm -hmm. the church. Mm -hmm. And to even more, why is homosexuality wrong? Because it's not, um, it would completely destroy the image that what, what marriage points to is this union between husband and wife who are different yet alike. Um, and the more you look at that, the more you're like, wow, yeah, he, uh, in, in some sense, really did have um, the he had the reality to which mar uh, marriage and sex were, were pointing so um, I, I must say before we leave if any of this has provoked shame or um, you know one of the things I loved about Allender is that he is very honest about uh, this all of us are sinners sexually all of us have unwanted sexual behavior to some degree whether it's the level Jesus talks about with our eyes only or in our hearts um, all of us have that. This is one of the most amazing books I've ever read. It's completely different than every... I've read a lot of books from Christians about sex. A lot of kind of like what Ashley was talking about. This is somebody who was from the school of theology that um, Dan Allender was in. And he provides a lot of statistics, but it's really helpful to actually deal with the heart level. To deal with what happened to you as a child... Um, 
and, and the way, with the stories behind your development that really are probably the reason why you have the unwanted sexual behavior that you have in the first place. It's called Unwanted by Jay Stringer. Um, how sexual brokenness reveals our way to healing. So um, I, I commend that to you. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you uh, for the goodness of the created world, for the goodness of marriage, and even for um, the goodness of what it points to. Lord, uh, it feels foolish to, to say some of the things that we said, and I pray that it, it actually does a work, a, a good work, a helpful work in the people's lives um, that, that engage this material, uh, that the, the truth would not be marred and mocked by the enemy, uh, but its preciousness, the, the good gift, would be seen as amazing and preserved and cared for and used by your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.